Good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. I want to read you this verse that I read this morning. Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. How lovely is your dwelling place. And here is what we want to understand more than anything in the world is that we have been invited into that place. We've been invited by the God of the universe to dwell in that place. And what we also have to ask the question is, then then why is it so inconsistent in our lives? We all can say that. About going into that place. When we've been invited there, why sometimes do we not go there like we can and should and, and often do in, in regards to our prayer life. I was sitting here this, this weekend, I was thinking there's, there's obstacles to our prayer life. There are obstacles that get in the way to encountering the presence of the living God. And I wrote down, uh, looked up obstacle on the computer and it says a thing that blocks one's way or prevents <clears throat> or hinders progress. That is the definition of an obstacle. A thing that blocks one's way or prevents or hinders progress. We've got to ask ourselves the question here. When it comes to the presence of the living God, the invitation of the living God to come into his presence, then what are some of those obstacles that prevent us from really diving deep and saying, how lovely is your dwelling place? Because our frequency to that place will allow us to say how lovely it is. But what are those obstacles that bring us from in there? I've listed a couple of obstacles that really could be really said about any discipline in our lives. It could be said about our prayer life. It could be said about our work. It could be said about exercise. But here are obstacles that people give that say, hey, here's an obstacle. You might want to say it's an excuse, whatever the case is. Maybe there is a lack of patience. There's a lack of discipline. There's a lack of knowledge. I don't know how. There's a lack of inspiration and there's a lack of desire. There's a lack of skill, a fear of change, fear of failure, feeling unworthy, procrastination, perfectionism, language patterns, disorganization, pessimistic thoughts, too many time constraints, too many complete, too much complacency and no much, no urgency, not taking responsibility, too many excuses and too much complaining. Obstacles. Those right there could be obstacles from us sitting here and saying, hey, the God of the universe has said, I want you to come into my very presence. I'm giving you an invitation. We learned that last week. I want you to come. My arms are open. I'm ready. And I need you to know that I hear you. And so as I was putting together this, this message series, I was sitting here going, well, what is an obstacle? What prevents us from accepting that invitation? What are those obstacles? And I was sitting here going, well, it certainly could be, yes, there's unconfessed sin would, would be a problem to encountering God. And, and there are several things that we could list that uh, could be an obstacle from us encountering his presence. And then um, the Village Church in uh, Tallis, Texas, uh, Jen Wilkins, some of you ladies know, JT English and Matt Chandler, put, uh, uh, they wrote something about obstacles to encountering God through prayer. And here's what they said. They said that it is the the number one thing that helps us or prevents us from having a robust and dynamic prayer life in the presence of the living God is that we do not marinate in the beautiful gospel long enough. 
And I started studying, and I was thinking, oh, okay, well, here's, here's some excuses. We all have excuses. Well, I don't get up early enough, and I don't wake up here, and I don't do this. And, and I just started, so I started studying. I started studying Ephesians chapter 2. And I've studied it, and I've taught it before. And I've been overwhelmed by this great message at this time of the year and really what we want to see accomplished here in our church. We want to be a people and place that constantly calls on the name of God in all situations that is a consistent part of our lives. Don't you want that? I want that. I want that for you and I want that for me. And so I've told you last week that my roommate who passed away, Shane, I could see that he was there. And I was like, God, you invited him, but you didn't invite me. And I could see when we were in school that he was dynamically encountering you on a regular basis. And I want that for my life and your life. So where are we going this morning? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is going to be a, maybe a reminder of you. And I hope that it is. I hope it's a great reminder of you of all that God has done. And we're going to break this apart. And then we're going to look at what happens if we misunderstand this message and if we misunderstand it, then we're going to have some misapplications, and we'll go to there at the end. But what I want us to do is I want us to dive deep into Ephesians chapter 2, and then make some applications about that. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And we're looking at this in the framework of, if we do not understand this message, it will drastically affect our prayer life in a negative way. And that is not what King Jesus has in store and planned for you. Because you look at all of the scriptures and you say that he's saying, I just want you to come. I want you to come and I want you to sit at my feet. I want you to sit. I want you to learn. I want you to know that I hear you. I hear you. And I love you. And so before we jump into Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 all the way going down to 10, we need to understand something really important. A message series on prayer, a message series on the presence of God, a Bible study on prayer is not going to all of a sudden heal us of a lack of prayer in our lives. What is going to do that is praying. <laughs> How do I get better at praying? How do I be more disciplined in praying? Just pray. That's it. It's not a message series in five weeks on this. So I always say this, hey, yes, we're putting a lot of time and we're putting some effort to gather together as a family and to really just to go through what this looks like. But at the end of the day, Jesus says pray and that's really what he wants you to do. Just talk to him. And so let's dive deep into Ephesians chapter one and let's just break this apart. And here's what it says in verses one through three. It's unbelievable and, and so profound and really important for us to understand. And and you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of, ma the rest of mankind. Here we see right now, from the very beginning right now, the Apostle Paul's writing a letter to the, Ephesian, to the churches of Ephesus. He's writing a letter. He's trying to remind them, hey, listen to me. I want you to realize in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 of Ephesians, this is all that you have. 
This is all that you have. In chapter 1, he says that God lavished his love on us. In chapter 2, he's just going back and going, hey, listen, I want you to remember what you were. So he's talking to believers, and he's saying, this is what you were like. You're not there now. This is what you were. It's important in order for us to go forward to remember what we were. Because what we were reminds us what we could have been. But because of God's grace, we don't have to be. And so he goes down and he says, hey, listen, you were dead. It does not say you were broken. It says you were dead. And broken people think if you're broken, you can, it can be fixed. A broken arm can be fixed. A broken leg can be fixed. He's saying, no, no, you are dead and you need to be made alive. That's what he's saying. So there's past tense talking about who we were. And when we understand who we were, we'll, we'll come to Christ and we'll realize how grateful that we can be because of what he has done. We do not become sinners when we sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is our status when we come into the world. Nobody teaches us to sin. I didn't teach my young kids and their babies. I didn't teach them to disobey. The nature is something that they were born into. And this is what, this is what it's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. It's a problem. And what is the means? What this means is that we are spiritually separated from God. We cannot have a relationship with God. We are separated. And there is nothing in the world that we can do anything do to fix that great problem. It also says that we walked according to the passions of our flesh. And so what that means is that we constantly in this state, if this is you presently, or if this is where you were, then what that means is, is that we constantly steal credit for all the things that happen, and then we constantly blame God for the things, or blame someone else for the things that don't go our way. You could sit there and say, well, something bad happened. Well, if God existed, if we're stuck here, if we're dead in our sins and we're in our sins, you could sit there and say, well, if God existed, that wouldn't have happened. But if something good happened, you could sit there and say, I nailed it, look at me. Because in that situation and in that posture, what we're doing is we are taking credit for everything good that takes place when we are in sin and separated from God. We are taking credit for things that are good. And we are blaming whoever, God, saying, oh, if he existed, he wouldn't certainly allow this to happen. And that's the great dichotomy right there. The Bible says that we have been made as objects of his wrath and what happens is, is that God comes to redeem and only he can do that. And so you're sitting here going, okay, Matt, you just said that we're gonna go through the gospel to help it impact our prayer life. This is incredibly frustrating and bad news right now. I thought the word gospel means good news. Yes, and you were aware of this because we, I think we do a great job in our kids' ministry, but that word gospel means good news. But in order to appreciate the good, you must know the bad, and the bad is, is that we are dead and there's nothing that you or I can do about it, okay? Let us understand that. And if that is saying, if you were dead and that's something past tense about you, I pray that the posture of your soul and the posture of our lives would be something that is so grateful for the next two words in verse four. Here's what it says in verse four, but God. I don't know of a greater two words or two statements in all of scripture than that right there, but God. We are absolutely in trouble. We're absolutely nothing that we can do about it. And here's what he says. The great God of the universe says, but God, who is he? Who is he? I'm glad you asked. 
Who is he? Listen, listen to what it says. It's so good. Being rich in mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve, we deserve eternal separation from God because of the sin. God is holy and we are sinners. God can allow, not allow that sin into his presence. But here's what he does. He comes and he says, but God, who, who is what? Who is rich in mercy. He is abundant in giving something. Not, not giving us what we do deserve. And then he says this, because of the great love with which he loved us. So he tells us the reason this love is unconditional. It means there is nothing that you do to get it. It's the way he loves. It is unconditional. It is agape. It is the love of God. And there is nothing in the world that even can come to compare to that type of love. And verse 5. This is, this is so overwhelming to me. Verse 5. Even when you were dead in your trespasses. So he's sitting there saying right now, you are at your worst right now, Matt Rice. You are at your worst and on April 3rd, 1983, I sent you to, 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 to Faith Baptist Church in New York. And I sent Mrs. Thayer to sit down with you. And I had her sit down to you. And I had her explain to you the but God of the Bible. And I sat down on April 3rd, 1983. Didn't know a lot. I sat there and I asked her, tell me what I need to know. I, mean, I know this surprises you, but I was crying. Not a very emotional guy. That's a joke for those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. I I am actually that person, and I'm proud of it. So here's what he says. Even when you are dead in your trespasses, so I need you to know something. I'm coming to you when you are absolutely at your worst, okay? You're at your worst, and I'm coming to you because I'm the best. And then he says this, and he goes on, and, and Paul in five and six, he has this line of thinking that he's trying to communicate to the church at Ephesus and all of the believers there. He is, he's trying to remind him. Now let's just remember something. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jew, and basically what he said is, the order, in order to be pleased with God, to be approved by God, you must obey the 613 laws that the Jewish system had in place. Jesus is not the Messiah. We're waiting for the Messiah who is going to free us of Roman bondage and persecution. And so what we're doing, Paul is saying, he's waiting for that. And then something radical happens, and he gives his life to Christ. Acts chapter 9, he gets knocked to his knees. He gives his life to King Jesus because Jesus came before him, and he said yes. And so Paul is writing this letter about 10 years after this took place, and he's sitting here and he says, okay, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. And then all of a sudden he gets overwhelmed because he's like, man, I had to follow those laws, those 613 laws. And he breaks train of thought and he goes, by grace, you have been saved. He just goes, by grace, you've been saved. He gets overwhelmed by that fact that he just loses his train of thought, not, not loses his train of thought, but just interjects this great, incredible, theologically rich, important principle for you and I that will drastically impact our lives and in our prayers. So even when we're dead in our stresses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Then he goes back to his train of thought, verse six, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You have been deposited and you have been placed in Christ, you are his and you are nobody else's. That's who you are now. That's who you were, that's who you are. I recognize some of you are still in one through three that are here today. You are dead. I'm here to tell you right now that you can be made alive, not because of a message, but because of Jesus and what he did and it is beautiful. And I pray that you would do that today. If you are in one through three and you are dead, please recognize that you can be made alive. Then he comes down here. 
And I think really when Paul interjects this hyphen of the text, he goes from verse 5 and he gets that little hyphen at the end of verse 5 and then he finishes in verse 6. He's like, he's overwhelmed. But I need to ask you, are you overwhelmed with that? Are you overwhelmed with the fact that you were dead and now that you can be alive? And I pray that you will because if we are overwhelmed with that, it will drastically impact us coming into his presence, accepting that invitation and seeing and calling on the name of God to do things that we dared not even think he could do if we were dead. Are you presently overwhelmed by the fact that by grace you have been saved? It's not a license It is freedom. Our prayer life is one way to measure whether or not we have been overwhelmed. I'll say it again. Our prayer life is one way to measure if we are truly overwhelmed by this message, this fact. Verse 7. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here is the deal. We get to see for our entire life the immeasurable riches of his grace. The average person, less average man, I think, is 72 to 74 years old. I've been a part of four funerals since Thanksgiving. The ages are 47, 48, 49, and 96. I turned 48 on Monday, okay? Uh, this was overwhelming to me. But here's what, I'm te- what I, here's what I want us to see right now. For all of your life, what I'm going to do is he says this, I'm going to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace. He is going to display them for us to see. And we do not see it if we do not understand the gospel and we do not accept his invitation to come into his presence. So here's the deal is, you're going to see it for all of eternity. But he says, because I'm God, I'm going to show you right now. And I want you to sit there. And I want you to absorb it. And I want you to digest it. And I want you to grab hold of it. And I don't want the circumstances that you find yourself in to rob you of this truth. Two of the greatest verses that have ever been written in the Bible that can be said about any verse in the Bible. (laughs) I recognize that. But here is a complete summary. And really, once again, an overwhelming aspect coming from someone who believed you do, you do, you do, and you're accepted. That's Paul. Here's what he says in verse 8. For by, say it, grace. You have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, which means it is free. It is not ours when it is given to us. It is ours when we accept it, and not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Listen to me. I want you to know something. Our boasting needs to be in King Jesus and him alone, not in our good deeds and good works. It is we boast in him. For when we boast in him, it postures us in a, in a position to be able to see all that he is doing and all that, he is, all that he can do. And we are a testimony to those folks that are around us so that they can see and they can savor this King Jesus that we talk about each and every week. I believe that verse 8 is probably one of the greatest exchanges in all of life. Here's the deal. I, I used to collect baseball cards. I think I probably have 10,000 baseball cards. They're in a, like a... Uh, like a treasure chest of a pirate in, in my garage. I've got 10,000 baseball cards. That was what I did. And, and here's a couple of things that would happen. I'd go with my brother. I'd go with people in the neighborhood. And we would sit there and we'd go, hey, hey, I got some baseball cards. And you know that when I got baseball cards, they weren't very expensive. And they had a piece of gum in the middle. That often ruined that baseball card. And you were hoping that it wasn't like a rookie or something like that because it would ruin the value of the card. 
And so I'd sit there and I would go to some of my friends and we would sit down and we would trade cards. And sometimes I'd get someone who didn't know what they were doing. And I'd come away and I would trade like Raleigh Fingers for Cal Ripken, okay? And I'd come away and I'm going, I got the better end of that deal. That's a pretty good deal, right? Like, I mean, Raleigh Fingers, of course, he's got the mustache. You guys Google that. That's old school right there. Okay, but here's you, you, you have, you, you, you go in and you trade these things and you say, man, I certainly got the better end of that deal. And I'm telling you, when we look at verse eight and we look at verse nine, for grace you have been saved through faith. It is not by your works. We got the better end of that deal. Got the better end. And so listen, listen, listen. When we truly understand this message, we'll never walk away from it. We'll keep sitting in it. We'll keep resting in it. We'll keep marinating in it so that it will impact every aspect of our life. And I believe the one key aspect is how we call consistently on God to do the unimaginable to us through prayer. So we look at it and we say the perfect sinless Christ. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was crucified, and he took the wrath of God meant for us upon himself. Here's a quote for you. I think the answer is that Paul recognizes that here is a perfect opportunity to emphasize the freeness of grace. As he describes our dead condition before conversion, he realizes that dead people can't, can't meet conditions. If they are to live, there must be a totally unconditional and utterly free act of God to save them. This freedom is the very heart of grace. So we boast. And who do we boast in? We boast in him. For it is all through him and because of him that this takes place. Then we go down here to verse 10, and we say, hey, now that I'm a Christian, I'll do good works. And then the Lord God through Paul says, no, 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 I've already prepared those good works for you to do. I just want you to see them, and I want you to do them. But I've prepared them. Here's what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Who are we? We're not our own. We're his. We are trophies of his grace, and we are to serve him wherever he has placed us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in him. So listen, there are good works in the place that you work right now that he has fashioned and planned. He's saying, I want you to say yes and just go do them. Right where you are, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your college, university, wherever the place you find you're, in your retirement, wherever it is, I just want you to walk in those things. Why? Because I want you to walk in those things because you've been saved by the beautiful grace of God. And so here's the question. Here's the question. What happens if we have a misunderstanding of this message? What happens if we have a misunderstanding? And if we have a misunderstanding, then we will misapply it. And that's what we're going to go to in, in, the, in the remaining of our time. So there's a misunderstanding. And here's the, one of the number one misunderstandings of the gospel is this, is the gospel saves me, but I must finish the process. The gospel saves me, but I must finish the process. What happens here is we come to faith in Christ and we say yes to him and we go, and sometimes we consider to say, I said yes to Christ, I'm going to heaven. But what we've been talking about for our entire, really the, the last year and a half is, what does it mean to be a disciple of King Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? So yes, it is that we have been saved, that we have our position before Christ has been changed. We were sinners standing before him. We have been saved because of the grace by faith through grace. And so we, we have that. 
And so sometimes there is this misunderstanding that, okay, God, thank you for saving my soul. Now I'm different. Now that I have a relationship with you, now I'll work everything else out and it's up to me. So now it's up to me to clean myself up. But Philippians 1, 6, the same writer who wrote this book is Paul. And he says, he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. Meaning he's not done. So yes, positionally we are saved. Positionally we are saved. And practically, he is helping us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because he starts, he finishes. And that is a beautiful thing. And when we understand that, yes, God, you did save me, and yes, God, you are saving me, then what we do is we position ourselves in the gospel, which produces a robust and dynamic prayer life that I believe that we can have. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel that will rob us of a prayer life if we believe that God starts and we finish. We have a responsibility by faith. We have a responsibility to obey that is true. But it is God who is working in us to bring about the desire that he has for our life. The gospel says prayer is an invitation to inhabit God's presence. The judgment on our life has been done and we have been deemed spotless and blameless. Here's a quote for you. God's gavel has been banged concerning me. I am spotless, blameless in his sight. I'm not showing up dirty. I'm not showing up clean by the blood of Christ. It is in a misunderstanding that we realize, man, I still gotta clean myself up. Let us not believe the lie that God starts and we finish. It is all God. Therefore, let's be in his presence to allow him to do what he said he would do. Put your yes on the table in regards to your mission in your life, but put your yes on the table in regards to him cleaning us up. And I'm telling you, our prayer life, I believe, will be radically different. Number two, another misunderstanding of the gospel. Number two is when we think technically rather than relationally. I went to college at Gardner-Webb University and I loved my time there. I came from South Windsor, Connecticut, as I've told you before. Gardner-Webb is in the middle of nowhere, let's just be honest. And so I was gathered together with the people from all over, mostly the South, and we would have prayer time. And I would be like, oh my gosh, this guy would be like, dear, dear God of heaven and whom all things flow. And he, had a, he changed his voice. And I'm like, right here, it was like, it was Tim. And when he prayed, I was like, who is that guy? I didn't know who he was. I was like, Tim, you, your voice changes when you pray. Oh, you're encountering God. So that's, that's when I encounter God. That's the way that I pray. I'm like, Really? Man, I was totally like, I was like, I don't have that voice. I don't have that. And so here's the danger right now when we look at the scripture and it's telling us, for you were dead, that's personal, but you've made, been made alive. And when we think technically and rather than relationally, our prayer life is drastically affected in the negative. I, uh, I think it's important for us to understand that he says, you were dead, you once walked, for by grace you have been saved. And when you read it, it's talking about you. And when I read it, it's talking about me. And when we think technically, we lose the fact that the God of the universe who knows every single number of hairs on our head, all of them or the lack of them, he knows them, he knows us, and he wants to be our father. There's no need for pretense, there's no need for pride. 
you can sit there and approach God of the universe and say, man, I don't like this aspect of my life. Tell him you don't like this aspect of your life. Tell him you don't like what's going on in your heart. Just tell him. He's God. He says, call on me as Abba, Father. We don't have any secrets. God is not appalled at anything we bring to him because he is never surprised. He is not appalled because he is not surprised. So when he says come, he means just that. Just come. That's what I want you to do. I want you to come. I, um, I've recently, in the last four months, have been asked to do the football and basketball games at Panther Creek High School. Uh, I have to tell you that I love this. Um, Bill Zedites, who many of you know, uh, not a member of our church, but he was the voice of the Catamounts for a long time. And, and so he left to go to Green Level, and, and he and I talked. And so I did football, and then now I do, now I do Friday night basketball. And I'll let you know something. I wanted to be an ESPN broadcaster, but the Lord don't mean to do this. So I said yes to this. But my ESPN days are Friday nights in the Panther Creek High School gymnasium. And I want to tell you, I love everything about it, okay? I'm having the time of my life. I'm really, I mean, it's, it's so much fun. So go to basketball games, go to football games, and call the game, and, and announce kids, and they're running out, and it's intense, and it's all fun. And I, I, Bill goes, um, we need to practice, because you don't have the right voice. He said, let me, let me help you with something. It's not sounding quite right. And so he went in there. We went over during the summer. I mean, this is July. Like 5 o'clock at night, it's 150 million degrees in the press box. And we got this new sound system. And he's like, let me show you how to talk so that you can sound like an announcer. And he's like, hold the microphone this way and this way. And I mean, I, I'm sitting there. And I videoed, my kids videoed me. And they sent it to my parents. And they're like, who is that? What I want you to know right now is that God, God doesn't want us to come to him with any pretense or be fake. He just wants you. He just wants us. He's like, just sit right here and let's talk. Let's talk. It's an invitation to be relationally connected to God. So we come, we sit, we speak. He knows everything. Just talk to him. So what happens if we have a misunderstanding, then we're going to misapply the gospel. Here's one way that we can misapply the gospel. God is sovereign over all, so why pray? The Bible teaches us that God hears us and in his sovereignty and in our prayers they connect together and he hears us and he moves and i think what happens sometimes is that we can misapply when we sit back and we go well god will just do what god will do and so we'll just let him let him do that why pray that is not what the scripture teaches and that is living a life of disobedience at the elevation of the command of the belief and the understanding that god is in control of everything but over here it says pray without ceasing and so that right there is a misapplication of a belief in the gospel. God is sovereign. He is. He's in control. You sleep good at night really because of that. I hope you do. He is in control. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And sometimes he's sitting there going, well, sometimes we can say, well, you're in control, so I'll just, I'll just have be prayer. I'll be prayerlessness. And that's not what the scripture teaches us, and that's not what Jesus himself demonstrated he was God in the flesh. He told us how to pray. He modeled to us how to pray. And he says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
which means, God, you're sovereign. I want you to start your prayers like that. He spent years doing that. And I know that we have the sovereignty of God and we have our prayers and how do they go together in the great grand scheme of things. I can sit here and tell you that I asked God to heal my mother-in-law of cancer and he did not. I asked him to take care of my father-in-law and there's a little, it's, it's different. And I asked him to heal my wife and he did. And at the end of the day, in all situations, I can sit there and say, he's sovereign. And he uses our prayers to, to be there together. Another, another one, another application, another misapplication is this. I can't do it, I don't know how. This is an invitation to come seek and knock and I need you to know something right now. God is never going to turn you away from keep knocking and keep pleading. You keep pleading, you keep pestering, you keep asking, right? You just keep doing it. You keep asking and you keep pestering. What does it say? I can't do it. I don't know how. Listen, I told you at the beginning, it's not a message series, a Bible study. It is just keep talking to him, keep praying. The best way to know how to pray is just to pray. Matthew 6, he teaches us how to do that. I would encourage you, take Matthew 6 and just pray Matthew 6. I would encourage you to take Psalm 23 and just pray Psalm 23. I've been really helped. This book right here called Paul David Tripp, as my heart cries out, he actually pens some prayers. And to jumpstart my prayer life in a new way this year, I have just been taking some prayers that he has written. And I'm praying them over myself and my family. And that's a good way. It's Paul David Tripp. It's called My Heart Cries Out. Number three, prayer doesn't work. I have tried it and it just doesn't work. That is a misapplication because of a misunderstanding of the gospel. Many of us in this room have prayed for things that have not happened. And the temptation is just to stop. That we would be, that would be a misapplication of the gospel. You see, the gospel has at its center. Here's what I want you to know something. You say prayer doesn't work. But here's what I want you to know. At the very center of the gospel are two words, but God. And that's why we keep praying. That's why we keep praying. But God. We may believe that it doesn't work and we may stop. But when we do that, here's what happens. You take his place because you dictate what is important. So at the instant, not only are we disobeying him, but we're taking his place because he's saying to pray, we're saying not. Basically what we're saying is, I'll be God, you can't. And so he's sitting here saying, hey, prayer doesn't work. Listen, God lines us up through his presence in prayer to get us on his will so that we can experience, understand, and know him and follow him to greater depths of our soul. And a proper view of the gospel reminds us of all that he can do and all that he is. Here's what I know. Licking and marinating in the gospel. Here's what I know. Here's what I, I believe that when we, when we sit there and we marinate in the gospel, we will, number one, remember where we were. Number two, we will be reminded of what God has done presently in us. And it will drive our prayer life so that we can see where he wants us to go. And I believe that that's one of the keys for us this year, now, in, in, in the life of just being a follower and a disciple of King Jesus, is just saying, God, where do you want me to go? All right, let me remember where I was. Let me, let me be reminded of, of what I have so that I can posture myself to know and hear and see where you want me to go. As I put my yes on the table and as I choose to follow you. I would say this, what are the obstacles in your life to a dynamic prayer life? What are the obstacles? What I wanted to do right now is there are two prayers 
that I have decided that I want to pray over us as a church in, my, in this book that I've got, My Heart Cries Out. What I want to do for us right now, it would be absolutely contradictory for us to talk on prayer in the presence of God by not praying. And so what I want us to do right now is I want to pray over us right now the prayer that had been in this book, and I want to call out to God to do something that only he can do. So I love you guys. Let's just join our hearts together in prayer. Let us understand the beautiful gospel and let us apply that message in ways that honor him. So Lord, let's, let's, let's pray. Lord, we wish we could commend to you our righteousness, but we can't. We wish we could brag of our strength to you, but we can't. We wish we could boast about our wisdom to you, but we can't. We wish to, that we could point you to our track record, but we can't. We wish we could tell you that we have no regrets, but we can't. You know us better than we know ourselves. We never escape your eye. Your, you search the deepest regions of our heart. You know our thoughts before they are conscious to us. You know our words before we even speak them to ourselves. You examine our hearts before they move us to action. So without pretense or inadequate excuse, stripped of pride and self-defense, we bow before you, devoid of any demand or argument. We make one plea, and it is for your mercy. We have come to accept what you know of us, and we cry for one thing, and we cry for grace. You humble us, but never humiliate us. You confront us, but never mock us. You warn us, but never abandon us. You call us, but never leave us alone. You discipline us, but never beat us up. You command us, but never fail to enable us. You see into our hearts, but never reject for us for what you see. You teach us your mysteries. You never make fun of how much we don't know. You stay near to us, but you never get tired of us. You place your love on us, but never withdraw it when we fail. So we love you. And we have come to understand that our hope, our security, our present and our future, our acceptance and identity, our ability and our potential are not in our love for you, but in your shocking, unfailing, faithful, wise, and powerful love for us. May we sit in that, God. As Northwest Community Church, as individuals and as a church, may we sit in that. May we never leave it. And may you move us to be a people in a place that experiences your presence, overwhelmed by your grace, and it's demonstrated in our commitment to praying to you like we've been commanded. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.